Well, this morning, we are changing gears as the past several weeks we've been in John and concluded a a study and a look at John's epistles. First John then stepped away, came back into second and third John. As I mentioned, we'll be uh, going over into the Psalms in the weeks to come, in two weeks. Actually, I will not be here to start that, uh, that series. Justin will be here and start us in Psalm 90. And we're going to go through to Advent from Psalm 90 to Psalm 104. So that's just the way the, the uh, year will go as we approach uh, the, the season of Advent down in uh, late November. Between our look at First John, Second uh, and Third John, and uh, the Psalms, we decided to take two weeks to reflect on a wonderful, often overlooked, often yeah, just not acknowledged, a poorly studied uh, doctrine within the Christian faith. One that we have addressed here in this congregation uh, from time to time, and spent some time on, and that is the doctrine of Christian liberty. The Doctrine of Christian Liberty. Uh, You see the sermon title today is Free in Christ. And so we're going to look at Rome. We're going to use our as our launching point here, uh, Romans 14. Paul addresses this throughout, even in Galatians. You hear him using the language of freedom and slavery, the the bondwoman and the free, and who are we? We're children of of the free, not the bondwoman. He particularly addresses this in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and also in 1 Corinthians 10. And so next week we'll be drawing on the 1 Corinthian passages as well. But today and next week we're basically looking at Romans 14. And so I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the portion that we're going to look at today, which is Romans 14, verses 1 through 13. This is on page 1009 in your Bibles. I'll read the text and then we'll jump in together. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to uh, he who does not eat to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and live again, lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, 
not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Paul is dealing with a very challenging and complex issue here. Just so we can get some sense, he brings up two issues, an issue of days, the calendar, how we judge days. Are there quote-unquote holy days, or is every day the same? There are no holy days. One day is not more holy than another. Is Easter Sunday a more holy Sunday than today? Is Christmas to be a special day within the church calendar of itself? Is it a holy day? Are there holy days? Are all days the same? Even the Lord's Day. Is today more holy than tomorrow, Monday? How do we think about the days? And he brings up the issue of food. How are we to think about food? Maybe food is an issue. It certainly is really in every culture. It's so basic to every culture. But particularly for Paul, it was an issue whether in the Roman church it was issues of Jews and Gentiles. How are we to handle food? Do the Old Testament food laws still remain? Must we eat kosher? I mean, the Old Testament is pretty specific. We didn't read in Leviticus the food laws. We could have done this, and I'm sure you all have some vague sense, if not a particular sense, of what those food laws were, right? But, I mean, if you have Jewish friends and they eat kosher, then they're still trying to abide by those food laws, very particular food laws. Not just what you can eat, but what foods can be mixed with other foods and what, you know, where, where, uh, what food can be cooked in and all these kinds of things matter. And it's very specific in Leviticus. And it's not a suggestion for health concerns. It is the law of the Lord. And so in the Roman church, you would have Jews who many of them, their conscience was still convicted that they must still abide by those kosher food laws. And you had Gentiles who knew nothing about kosher food laws. It's food, let's eat. Then you had Gentiles who also had food issues because some of them used to worship idols. They would go down to the city center and they would participate in uh, uh, sacrifices to the Roman and Greek gods. And the, those, sacri- those sacrifices that would be made would produce a high volume of meat right, from all the animals that were sacrificed. And then you might eat of those sacrifices. You would certainly go to the meat market because, again, there would be an abundance of meat from these sacrifices. Some of these temples sacrificed 24-7. And so there was a high volume of, of meat production. And it was sold in the, in the marketplace. And you, as, a, as a, a, a worshiper of these gods, would have no problem of conscience going down and buying the meat at the local meat market. And even contributing to the local uh, 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 temple, knowing that, hey, I really feel good about this. Not only am I getting meat at a discounted price, but I'm giving money to this, to the cause that they can go purchase perhaps more animals for sacrifice. And then you became a Christian. And when you became a Christian, like that's your source of meat. That's the marketplace where you go to buy meat. But now all of a sudden, you had many Christians who were very convicted over this. Can I buy that meat? Am I, in purchasing that meat, am I participating in the worship of idols? This meat was offered to that end. Can I then buy it? And many who just wanted to run far from that said, no, no Christian should do that. That would be an unchristian thing to do to participate in this practice. And therefore, they, they fled from it. And then you had other Gentile Christians who thought, yeah, no, I know we used to participate in that, now I don't, but yeah, so I'm not sacrificing anymore, but I'm still buying meat at a good price here. It's good meat. I don't care what they do with it. I'm, I'm just eating the meat. I'm not engaging in the sacrifice. 
And so there were all kinds of fights began to break out over that. Really, this is stuff that's like down on the ground Christianity. Right? We feel it in our own culture. Right? We felt it particularly with, with COVID, right? How do we manage these things? Do we mask? Don't we mask? Do we vaccinate? Don't we vaccinate? What does the law say? Do we have to obey that authority? What authorities are we called to obey? What authority does the state have? I mean, these are all very complicated questions. They are not simple questions. However, they are questions that very, very easily bring division to a church. They're the tip of Satan's spear that work their way into the life of a church and end up bringing division to a church. And I don't just mean a particular church, but the church at large. And so we thought, you know what? This is just good Christian family stuff to talk about, especially in, a, in an age like ours, which has become very divisive. People have very, very strong opinions about things, and it's not just COVID and masks, but political things and all kinds of things that thought, hey, let's take two weeks and just, as a family, talk about this. Look in Romans 14 and let's think through it together using the instances that we can step away from, right? These are not hot topics to us. Most of us are not engaging in big debates over whether we could go buy meat from Hannaford's or whatever your store is around here, your low. What's the store out here? I don't know, right? the uh, grocery store. Stop and shop, okay. You know, do, do we go buy, can we buy meat from the local stop and shop, you know? Uh, most of us are not fighting over that. Um, so we can step back. This is the beauty of studying history or studying a text and literature because we can do it in an unbothered way. We can we get kind of in a little laboratory and we can sit and we can put it on the table and we can study it. And then we have to do the hard work of pulling that out of the laboratory and bringing it into our lives and saying, okay, and then how does this apply for me here? So let's think about it. Now, as we begin, I, I, I want to get to the text, but this stuff does require, um, it does require this introduction why did we choose Leviticus 10 today, or anything from Leviticus? And I chose that because I want us to reflect on the grand story of the Bible. And in the Old Testament, you know, there were thousands of laws. There was a law for everything. When you go back, I challenge you to go, if you've done your Bible in a year or you've started a Bible study and you say, you know, you're just feeling good. Like, I'm going to read through the Bible and you're, you're doing really well. You know, you're cooking through Genesis and you, you're loving, you're loving all the great stories, you know, and then, and you get to Exodus and you're, you're, again, it's just awesome. You hit the back end of Exodus and you're like, okay, all right, all right. I'm I'm going to, I'm going to push through all this tabernacle stuff. I'm not, Wow, I don't see the relevance here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push through. I'm going to push through. And then you hit Leviticus, and you just, okay, okay, I can't do it. <laughs> and you say, you know what? I'm going to go to John. I'm going to go to John. I'm going to go to, I'm going to jump. You know what? The Old Testament is great. The Old Testament is great, but I'm going to jump to Matthew, and I'm going to start in the New Testament. <laughs> we know this. We feel this because Leviticus, the end of Exodus and Leviticus, are just packed with laws. And you're thinking, do I really need to know that you can't boil a baby lamb in its mother's milk? Like that law, I, I appreciate that it's in there. I'm just struggling to see how I can how I can deal with that. But but these laws are important. Now, they're important and, and they're wonderful to think about and talk about. I certainly am not making light of the scriptures. I'm mocking myself and my, my terrible Bible reading. But it is worth reading Leviticus, of course. But Leviticus is given, and the law is given, to 
and and hear me, I say we'll set this in this context to an immature people. Law is given to children. Right? When you're when you're a child, you need mom and dad to tell you what to do in every little circumstance. No, you can't do that. Now, here's the rules. I don't want you to do this. Now, when we get out of the car, here's how we're going to handle it. Now, when we go into the restaurant, you're going to do this. No, 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 Johnny, you sit here. No, Sally, you sit there. Right? I mean, we have to tell little children what to do. Now, make, now you say thank you to Grandma for the gift you get. You know, like, here's all the rules, and I'm going to direct you. And little children, obedient little children, look to Mom and Dad to tell them or to their teachers, or to whatever, to tell them what to do almost in every scenario. That's the deal when you're a little child. You need law. You need guidance and direction in almost every little sphere of life. Right? We know this. But we also know that when you mature, the laws start to fall away. Why We don't look to mom and dad anymore to be told everything to do. The idea is that having been trained, having had the training wheels of mom and dad's laws, mom and dad's rules, you've had these training wheels, you've been tugged, grabbed on the ear, maybe patted on the behind, reprimanded, told not to do that, demanded to do this, that you've had these training wheels that as you grow up now, you have the rhythms so that you can become a man or a woman who now lives into those laws, doesn't need the particular direction, understands the principle, knows the application, and can begin to work it out on their own. That's what maturity is. And the Old Testament, in many ways, is a children's book. It's written for the immature church. Now, I don't say immature in a disparaging way. Just like I wouldn't say to a child, you're immature, I mean that in a disparaging way. It's a reality. We all must grow. It's interesting that the Bible begins with Torah, law. But then it moves toward wisdom. The book of Proverbs is not the first book in the Bible. Leviticus comes before Ecclesiastes. Leviticus comes before Proverbs. You must ride the bike with training wheels before we grow to a place where you can hear the words of Solomon. That require, there are all kinds of principled things that require great wisdom and application in life. But that's the story of the Bible. The Bible leads us from immaturity to maturity. And this is not just true in our individual lives. It's true for us as the people of God in the revelation that has is being given to us. Laws are for the immature. They need to be told everything to do. The mature are expected to have wisdom. Scares me a little bit about our society, just on a political cultural point, right? If we go and look at the laws of our land, the fact that we have to have a law for everything says something about us as a culture. We're acting like little babies, right? We're not men and women who can be trusted to be adults. The fact that we have to be told Everything to do in terms of a pandemic, right? We feel that. It's like, no, we all have, this is the law. It has to be this way. It's like, well, that, that's not that's not how adults live. But we don't trust each other. We trust, but I don't trust that you're an adult. And we become a country of children if we're not careful. And we have to be careful of this. I have to be careful of this as I run Chapel Field, right? The Christian school. Christian schools can be places of many laws, laws upon laws. I was saying to our, we, we, 
cut back, in fact. Not even intentions just happen because of the ethos of the school. But I remind our administrators, hey, I want fewer rules, not more. Make them broad, that cover a lot of offenses, but make the rules fewer. That we can apply to a lot of things, but make them fewer. They're easier to hold on to, and they expect our students to live into them. right? Not every little rule for everything they do. That's not how we want, it's not how we're going to bring our students to maturity either. So the Bible leads us to this. The Old Testament is a time of immaturity. And you heard Paul talk about this in in Galatians 4, right? Hey, we were under the law. We were under a tutor, a schoolmaster. We had the schoolmaster with the wooden ruler that would crack our knuckles. That's what the Old Testament was. Nadab and Abihu. Uh, Who told you to bring fire in here? Just thought it'd be a good idea. You're done. You're done. God did not say do this. This, no, don't think yourselves wise. This is the time of training wheels. Did God say to bring fire in here? No, he did not. Okay, doom. Now, we've all learned, boys and girls, we've all learned today, you don't bring strange fire into the house of the Lord. He is holy and he is respected, and therefore you don't just freelance your way into the, into the sanctuary. No, this is the, this is the, what, no, Aaron, don't you, you better not take your hat off. You better not put ashes on your head and mourn. You better not shed a tear about this. This is the holiness of the Lord. Now, hey, you guys, now what's going on with that goat? <laughs> Where did that go? Now, how are we dealing with this? I mean, down to the particulars of this goat and whether it's done this way or whether it's done that way. The Old Testament was a time of tutorials, the knuckle cracking, a lot of joy as well. But there was, there was that, hey, we're going to learn. This is going to be the time of training wheels. But Paul says to the Galatians, but you're not in that time now. That era of the schoolmaster, the era of Torah, is gone. Christ came under that. Christ bore all the offenses that we accrued under that. And he has now set us free. And now we, in Christ, are expected to be adults. We now live in the freedom that is ours in Christ. One that requires spirit-given, hear me now, not just self-given, spirit-given wisdom. You see this in the book of Acts, if you remember back to our study on Acts, right? In the beginning of the book of Acts, when uh, Judas is gone, right? Judas has killed himself, and now we have 11 uh, apostles, 11 disciples, and they determine that they should have another. They should have a replacement for Judas. And they have to figure out how to do it. Well, they're little boys and girls, right? It's like it's like they're on the upper room, but they don't know what to do. How do we decide? So they say, well, we better let God tell us. So we we cast lots. You know, we draw straws. And we, we let God tell us who is, oh, it should be Matthias, right? Thank you, God. You do, Thank you, Dad. Dad, what should we do? Dad says, all right, that one, okay. They're still living like children. And again, I'm not putting them down, right? They're in that, that transition time. But then what happens? They receive the Holy Spirit. And now later in the book, when it's decision time in Acts 15, and they have to make a very difficult decision. Think about the weight of this decision. In Acts 15, when they have to decide, should Gentiles be circumcised? Circumcision matters so much in the Old Testament that when Moses didn't do it to his son, God sought him out to kill him. 
This is like a Nadab and Abihu thing. Like, did I tell you to circumcise or didn't I? Because if I did, then you better do it or else I'm going to come kill you. Levels. When dad tells you, you do it. And this is the way we're going to learn. These are going to be the training wheels. And now they're having to make a decision, a really weighty decision. Do we tell Gentiles coming in, they should be circumcised or don't we? And do they say, okay, yes or no, God, we're going to draw straws. You tell us the answer. No, they do not. They debate. They debate and they pray and they decide. And they say, here we go. They're adults. Right? They're living in the wisdom that they have gathered by the Spirit. Remember, this is post-Pentecost. Right? This is not a, this is not a sermon on, hey, you should all be wise individuals. No, you have the Spirit and you have Christ and we are to live out of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul now comes to the church in Rome, a new church, a baby church, he is bringing to them the wisdom of Christ that they might live as adults within the kingdom of God. And there's dissension. Right? The people who don't want to eat the meat and who believe you should not eat the meat, how could you, how could you be a Christian and eat this meat? How can you be a Christian and listen to that kind of music? How can you be a Christian and watch that Netflix series? How can you be a Christian? You can hear all the things, right? So a person, for me, when I was a kid, the adults in my life were men who had been kind of saved out of that sex, drugs, and rock and roll culture, right? And for them, many of those guys burned their rock and roll albums and thought, no, you cannot... As a Christian, you ought to be nowhere near these groups. Right? That rock and roll music leads to sex and drugs and, and man, I was saved out of that. And please, when I get in your car, don't throw on that, that rock station. No, no Christian should be listening to that. Okay? You can feel that. And then you got somebody of a younger generation who didn't come into that and just thinks, no, man, it's great music. And they want to listen to it. But no, he says, wait, wait, I thought you were a Christian. Why are you listening to that? Well, because it's awesome. No, don't you know what that calls? That kind of that kind of tension, and Paul is dealing with this this kind of division, and so we have his challenge. And let's look at the challenge now that comes. And again, we'll come back to this next week as well. Receive one who is weak in the faith. Now we have to deal with that distinction right off the bat. What does he mean by weak? And what we're going to say is the person whose conscience is convicted on things that God has not directly convicted us of. Even a mature person, even adults, need certain rules, right? Even adults, we, we do believe we need law, that there are some boundaries, some fixed point that we still have to have. And the Bible, even, in, even for the mature, even in Christ, there are still laws. The Ten Commandments still apply. We have to be very careful. It's very easy for Christians, again, to swing on this spectrum of saying, oh, we want to be little children. We call that legalism. Where it's like, no, 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 this is the way you have to do this. And this is the way, and no, you can't do this. And no, you can't do that. All these things the Bible has, I can't find anywhere in the Bible where it says I can't do this. But you've just told me as a Christian I can't do this. That's legalism. 
that the way I understand obedience to God, even though it's not directly in the Bible, the way I understand obedience to God is the way you should all obey. And if you don't, then you're probably not a Christian. Paul talks about this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. He's like, there's going to come upon the church a demonic spirit that's going to say, don't you touch, don't you taste, don't you handle these things. That is, that stuff is off limits. That stuff's sinful. Don't you, if you even touch it, you're sinning. And then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 4. But this is ridiculous. He says, God has made all things. All things are made by God and therefore they're good. Why, why would somebody say you can't touch and you can't taste and you can't handle? And don't you marry and don't you do this. That's legalism. That's immaturity. And yet, we can slide over to the, no, what we require is maturity and wisdom. And there's no law. There's no law. Just be big boys and girls. We call that antinomianism, right? That there's no law. It's against the law. Any, any law, anytime you say, I must, you're treating me like a child, and that's not how it works within the kingdom. And neither of those, both of those are very, very destructive within the kingdom. Of course there are laws. The Ten Commandments still stand. And that's why you can have Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 say, hey, when you see the sexually immoral brother, judge him. Point it out, say, that is sin, and you must repent of it. That's not antinomianism. That's not, oh, there's no law. And that's not legalism either. That's one of those fixed points. I don't care whether you're in the Old Testament or whether you're in the New Testament. We are to be sexually moral. We are to have one true God. We are not to be idolaters. Old or New Testament. Babies or big boys. There are certain fixed points. And Paul then comes to the church and he says, now receive one who is weak in the faith. The weak person is the person who takes things that are not commanded or forbidden in the Bible and whose conscience is convicted by them. You shouldn't listen to rock and roll music. You shouldn't eat that meat. Okay, I'm convicted by it. I came out of that culture. There's nowhere in the Bible you're going to find that you should not listen to rock and roll music. Now, you might want to make a principle you want to say whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, whatever is lovely, set your mind on these things. And you might try to, to deduce from that to say, and therefore you shouldn't listen to rock and roll music. But again, we have to be careful with our deductions. Sexual immorality is direct. I don't have to make any deduction. It says right there, we are not to be sexually immoral. You shouldn't listen to rock and roll music? Mm, that's, that's, that's a step away, and that's a tough one. But that's fine. You've made that deduction in your own heart and you are convinced that it is sinful. Paul describes that person who is convicted in their conscience over something that the Bible has not directly forbade or commanded as a weak brother or sister. And he's not talking them down. He's saying their conscience is weak on this issue. They don't think they can eat that meat. And that's limiting them. And that's okay. In fact, we're going to hear to, in, in Corinthians next week, he's going to say, and therefore, if you do it, you're actually sinning, even though the thing is not inherently sinful. Eating that meat, Paul is going to say, is not inherently sinful. But if your conscience is convicted on it, and you go ahead and violate your conscience and eat it, even though the thing itself is not sinful, you have sinned. Not because you've eaten meat, but because you've violated your conscience. We take the conviction of the conscience as the Holy Spirit working within us. 
And there must be a reason why the Holy Spirit didn't want you to eat it. Maybe it will cause you to sin. And you violated it. So there's a weakness there, but it's not down-talking. It's just our consciences are all weak on different issues. So what does Paul say? Receive. That is, Paul's context here is love. He, he begins right with the idea that what is he after? He wants us to receive the weak brother, not to mock the weak brother, not to judge the weak brother, but to receive the weak brother or sister. Receive the one who is weak in the faith, not with disputes over doubtful things. Look, if you want to fight with me over the atonement, we will fight. Right? We'll wrestle that one right to the ground. You want to fight over doctrinal issues. You want to fight over sexual immorality. We will do it. Our church is fighting over issues of homosexuality. These are important and necessary fights. We must have them. And if in the end they divide the church, they divide the church. It's a sad thing, but it, we will let revealed truth divide it. You know, that we will do. But not over doubtful things. We're not going to let the church be divided over whether or not you should drink alcohol or may drink alcohol. Right? We're not going to let the church be divided over whether or not we must or must not get vaccines. We can have strong opinions on these things. But we there's nowhere in the you're going to have to deduce from the Bible, well, if you really loved your neighbor, you'd get a vaccine. Right? You're going to have to make a deduction that this is the commandment then that thou shalt. And when you put thou shalt in front of it, you better have it clear from the word of God. If not, what we're doing is imposing our certainty on doubtful things onto our brothers and sisters. And that is destructive. Receive one who is weak in the faith not to dispute over doubtful things, even though we can have brotherly and loving debates over that. That's not what he means. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. And we won't get into the, the discussion here whether it's vegetarianism or meat eating. That's a dispute here. But really, again, you have a Jew-Gentile issue and you even have the issue with the meat sacrificed to idols. But it wouldn't even matter, even if it is vegetarianism. If a person has a strong belief that we should not kill animals, Again, you're going to have a hard time finding that in the Bible, but if a person is convicted on that, then don't eat meat. That's not the issue, whether or not you eat meat. The issue is whether we judge our brother who does eat meat. Or if you believe it's ridiculous not to eat meat, God has called us to eat meat. After all, there were all these animal sacrifices, and they ate lamb and all this kind of stuff, and it's ridiculous not to eat meat. And so your brother or sister who's a vegetarian, you despise them for being so, and you mock them, and you constantly bring it up, and you kind of speak against them and wound them. Both of those is what Paul is attacking, because neither of those is love. Neither of those is living as an adult within the kingdom. For one believes he may eat all things, but the one who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him who eats, let not him who eats, despise him who does not eat. That is, the one whose conscience is convinced, no, I am free to do this, ought not despise, mock, talk down, constantly make fun of the person who doesn't, who wants to eat, who believes you should only eat vegetables. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. You may be so convinced of this in your conscience, and therefore you must be very careful that you do not take something that you have such a strong conviction about and now absolutize it out to the church unless I can find it squarely in the scriptures 
so that those who don't, I am judging as not really faithful. You don't really love your brother. You don't really care about the truth. We have to be very, very careful. That can happen very easily. It's very easy for the strong, the person whose conscience is free on this, to mock, and it's very easy for the person whose conscience is convicted to judge. And again, we're not talking about judging true immorality that is defined in the Bible. Paul was very clear. Turn him over to Satan. Judge that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about doubtful things. He's talking about things that you are convicted about, that you've kind of deduced by degree from the Scriptures, but that are not obvious within the Scriptures directly. Why should we not judge? Verse 4, who are you to judge another man's servant? Right? The, the problem is, I'm not your servant. I am the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. What matters to me is not what you think about me. What matters to me is what Jesus thinks about me. Now, again, on a certain level, what you think about me matters, right? And what I think about you should matter. But ultimately, what matters is what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks about me. He's the one that I serve. He's the one that I answer to. He's the one that I'm going to have to stand before. I'm not going to stand before you on Judgment Day. Your opinion is not going to matter as I stand before, before the Lord on Judgment Day. Jesus Christ will matter. And therefore, we have to be careful about judging another man's servant. I am Jesus' servant. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. And this is a beautiful, it's one of these passages just tucked in the scriptures, and yet it's, it's such a wonderful statement here. To his own master, he stands or falls, and indeed, he will be made to stand. For God has received him. That is to say, God, I am forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I am in Christ, then for all my foibles, for all my failings, for all my lack of wisdom, for all the times I messed it up, my conscience should have been stronger on this, or my conscience was too strong on that. You know what, brothers and sisters? I'm going to stand on that day of judgment. Not because I got it all right, but because he is able to make me stand. And you are going to stand. I may disagree with you on this. I may have strong convictions about that. I'm kind of bothered that you don't share my convictions, right? That's how we get. But you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ has saved you. He has forgiven you. And you are going to stand before him in judgment. Not just stand for judgment, but stand through the judgment because he has made you stand. Where you've gotten it wrong, he's forgiven you. He's restored you. And he's restored me. And therefore, we can loosen the grip a little. I don't have to throttle you because you don't agree with everything I agree with. If you're wrong, that's okay. The Lord is going to make you stand. And if I'm wrong, he's going to make me stand. Therefore, we can relax with each other. We can love each other. And we can debate with each other. And then we can put our arms around each other and go get a meal together. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. And indeed, he will stand. For God is able to make them stand. One person esteems one day over another. The other esteems all days alike. Let each be convinced in his own mind. Fully convinced. Now again, this is not relativism. Because it can sound like that. Well, hey, look, you have your thing. I got my thing. That's your truth. This is my truth. No, not on the fixed points. Not on the revealed truth. 
If you disagree with this, you're wrong. You're out of line. You need to be judged. You need to be called out. If I am wrong, I need to be called out. Not to each their own, and you have your ways, and I have my ways. So American. But on doubtful things, yes. Whether you eat that meat or don't eat that meat, you know what? Be convinced in your own mind and do what you believe will allow you to most glorify God. And you know what? That may be different for you than it is for me. And each of us must do what we believe and we are fully convinced is most consistent with the Bible. In my scenario, as the person God has made me to be, with the influences I have, with the effects on my life, with my own personal weaknesses that may not be your weaknesses, I may not be able to do that because it may cause me to do another sin if I do it. But you may be absolutely fine to do that. And since the Bible hasn't forbidden it, go for it. Be convinced in your mind that you can glorify God with this. And I'll be convinced in my mind that I cannot glorify God in this. And I'm not going to hold you to my own limitations. I'm just not going to do that. Or I must not do that. So let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. Now notice, he's treating us like, like adults here. He's assuming we're doing it as to, to the Lord. This is the ultimate question we must then ask. With my freedom, am I doing it to the Lord? And here, here's the question I give to you today. When you are dealing with doubtful things, the technical term is adiaphora for these kinds of things, things that the Bible does not directly command or prohibit, can you? Are you doing this to the glory of God? We're to, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So therefore, we must ask, this is sort of the qualifying question, can I watch this movie to the glory of God? Can I hang out with these friends to the glory of God? Can I have this food and this drink to the glory of God? Maybe you can, maybe I can't. Maybe if I start eating this, I'm going to eat in a gluttonous way. Therefore, you know what? I don't think I can eat this to the glory of God, but you can. Go eat it. I'm not going to. Maybe I can watch this movie, but you, it's going to cause you to lust. Don't watch it because you think I can't do this to the glory of God. He's saying here, he's assuming he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. It's not like, well, one is doing it to the Lord and the other one's doing it selfishly. No, he's assuming we're adults. And if I choose not to eat, I'm choosing not to eat unto the Lord. And if you choose to eat, I'm going to assume that you are choosing to eat as unto the Lord. By the way, that's charity. That's saying, I know you don't have my same scruples on this, but I assume that your lack of scruples on that are unto the Lord. You believe you can do this to the glory of God. Good on you. And you're going to assume that if I'm not, it's because I don't, I, I'm not doing it as unto the Lord. He who eats, eats to the Lord. He who does not eat, does not eat unto the Lord. For he gives thanks, and he who does not, excuse me, the one who eats, eats to the Lord. For he gives thanks unto God. And the one who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us, again, here's Paul assuming we're adults. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. And here, the living and the dying, while we can absolutize it, I think what Paul is referring to here is the self-denial or the indulging, and indulging in, in a good way, taking, not being overindulgent, but indulging. That whether we imbibe or don't imbibe, what should be and must be motivating us in the doing or the restricting 
is to the Lord. Whether we live, we live to the Lord. So whether we imbibe, we imbibe to the Lord. Whether I eat, whether I watch, whether I play, I do it as unto the Lord. And if we die, that is if we deny, if we restrict, if we hold back, if we cut off, your right hand causes you sin, I cut it off, I do it as unto the Lord. Having that smartphone is killing my soul. Cut it off. Nothing inherently sinful about a smartphone. But if that smartphone, if I can't use my smartphone to the glory of God, cut it off. And cut it off as unto the Lord, to the glory of God. Whether we live and take, or whether we cut off, restrict, and die, we do it as unto the Lord. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living, the self-denying and the one who indulges. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will confess. So then let each of us, uh, so then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. And that is a reminder. Right? It is a reminder that we will have to stand before God for these decisions. These might be doubtful things, but here's what's not in doubt. You will give an answer for every one of them. As I tell my students, you will turn in the receipts one day. He's given you the company credit card. Right? He's given you a life. He's given you a body. He's given you skills and talents. He's given you friends. He's given you time. He's given you food. He's given you the company card. And there's going to come a day where you're going to turn in the receipts. And he's going to be like, you spent that on what? Well, explain this one to me. It's, not, it's, going to be a rough, it's going to be a rough day. We're going to have to answer for whether that we, we did use that smartphone to the glory of God. Whether we did abstain for the glory of God. Whether we did indulge to the glory of God, right? Each of us are going to have to stand. Now, here's the good news. If you're in Christ, you will stand. It may be painful. Have to give an account and explain these expenditures. But if you're in Christ, you will stand. He will make you stand. Because he will look at it all. And he will say, my blood covers it. It's paid. That's, that's the good news. The challenging news is you will be saved but as through fire. Right? We're going we're gonna to have to go through the challenge of that. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, so we conclude with this. Therefore, and we can talk more about this in Sunday school if you'd like. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. This text began with receive. Receive. Love. Receive the one you disagree with. Not with mocking, nor with judgmentalism. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And that's going to transition us into next week. Because next, what, we're, what we need to think about, what we're thinking about right now is myself. Can I do this to the glory of God? Okay. Can I, am I dying to God? Am I living to God? Am I drinking to God? Am I abstaining to the glory of God? That's the question we have to ask. Because whether we're eating or drinking, playing or working, watching or doing whatever, whatever we're doing, we must do all to the glory of God. So Paul begins here with this first thought about me and not judging people who have a different view than I do on doubtful things. But where Paul's going to take us next week is, yet there is something else you have to think about. And that is, I do have to think about what effect my decisions will have on my brother or sister. I do have to think about that as well. It's not all just, well, am I doing to this 
this to the glory of God. Because Paul's going to come and say, well, you can't do it to the glory of God if in doing it, you're destroying your brother. It's not just about, well, in my soul is everything in line. It's like, yeah, but am I causing my brother to lose his salvation? Because if I'm doing that, or my sister, then no, I'm not doing it to the glory of God. Because God loves that person. And if I'm causing that person to go into destruction or damnation, then no, that's not to the glory of God. And this raises the challenges of Christian liberty. But these are the challenges that come with adulthood. These are the challenges that are good for us, that are worth wrestling with, because this is how adults live. They don't need to be told everything. They pray, and they think, and they consult, and they confer, and they make a decision, and then they assess. And they go, hmm, I see that negative effect that it's having on my brother. Let me rethink this, because I'm driven by certain principles. I'm driven by love. I'm driven by the fixed points of the scriptures. And I'm constantly, in wisdom, acting, assessing, readjusting, assessing, adjusting. That's life within the kingdom. That's big boy and big girl stuff. It's what it means to be a Christian. To say, I operate out of the glory of God and of love for my brother and sister. So this week, the glory of God. Next week, love for brother and sister. And then we can discuss it in Sunday school as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you that in Christ you have made us free. That in Christ you treat us as adults and we're scared to say it because many times in our own Christian life we feel like little children. We feel like we need to be guided and given the specifics and yet you call us to pray for wisdom. Father, we pray that you would help us live into the freedom that has been secured for us in Christ. For in Christ we have our full maturity. He is our maturity. And we thank you that at the end of the day, it is in him and through him that we will be judged. And Lord, how we thank you that in him we will be made to stand. So in the freedom of knowing that, help us then to make decisions in which we live to your glory. Whether it's in living, participating, taking, imbibing, eating, watching, using or in dying, forsaking, neglecting, abstaining, cutting off, putting away. In either of those, help us to live in ways that honor and glorify you and love our brothers and sisters. We pray for the wisdom that this requires, and we know that you freely give it by your Spirit. Well, we thank you for that in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.